Looking for the latest perspectives to help simplify changing market conditions? Go to Nationwide, one of America's largest financial services companies. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. I take a four-week moving average, try to smooth it out a little bit, but the fraud thing hangs over it. Just more data of what is somewhat a fully employed America. Writing about that has been William Dudley, former New York Fed president, Bloomberg opinion columnist. He has been absolutely 100 percent on of a central bank looking for higher interest rates. Bill Dudley, thank you for joining us off your essay with Bloomberg opinion. You quote the clash, you channel back the London calling. Guess what? The Eccles building is calling. Do they have to wait for the data or can they get out front? Well, they're going to take a pause because they believe that there are long and variable legs of monetary policy, and so they want to see the effects of prior actions. Uh, but they've characterized it as a skip because they think that they'll probably have to do a little bit more. And we'll probably see that in the summary of economic projections. We'll probably see a couple, uh, one or two additional rate hikes penciled in uh, for 2023. Uh, the economy really hasn't slowed much at all. If you look at the Atlanta Fed uh, GDP now forecasts for the second quarter, it's 1.9%. And as we you were just talking about, the labor market still seems mm-hmm. very, very strong. Bull- the Fed hasn't really accomplished much yet. Bullard of St. Louis and Indiana University uses his economics to say we can do this exercise and avoid some form of NBER recession. Do you agree? I think it's made very hard to avoid a recession if you believe that the Fed has to push the unemployment rate up by a meaningful amount. If you look at the Fed's own forecast, they think the unemployment rate is going to have to rise by at least one percentage point. Every time it's risen by one percentage point uh, since World War II, we've had a recession, 12 out of 12. So I'm betting against uh, a soft landing this time as well. Bill, the implication here that the Fed hasn't really accomplished much and that they should go further with respect to hiking rates, that perhaps a pause or skipping or whatever you want to call it is uh, perhaps not the right approach. What's the consequence to that? Do you expect this to actually accelerate inflation or keep it higher for longer in a way that people aren't really expecting? It doesn't really matter if they hike in June versus July, as long as they keep financial conditions from easing significantly. And I think that's why they're using the language of of skip rather than pause. They don't want the markets to think that they're finished because they don't want the stock market to rally a lot, bond yields to fall. If that were to happen, that would make monetary policy, uh, the impulse of monetary policy more stimulative and would be counterproductive to what they're trying to accomplish, which is to cool off the labor market. 
The data has been really confusing. We've been talking about that all day, whether it's earnings or whether it's just the macroeconomic inputs that we normally have used. What are you looking at to really highlight that there's still a lot of strength that, frankly, the lag effects are not going to take care of? Well, I think the labor market is the key thing to focus on. What's happening to payroll employment growth? What's happening to the tightness of the labor market? As, for example, the JOLTS report yesterday showed an increase in the number of unfilled jobs relative to unemployed workers. We're back to 1.8 unfilled jobs for every unemployed worker. Uh, Chair Powell in the past has said we need that ratio to be down at around one to one. Uh, and also what's happening to wages. Uh, Powell, Powell in his last press conference was very clear. He thinks wage, wage inflation needs to be 3%, not uh, 4 to 6% uh, to be consistent with 2% inflation. So the labor market and wages, I think, are going to be the key drivers of the Fed feeling more comfortable that they're actually on a track to 2% inflation. Some people will say, well, we are seeing disinflation, uh, and it actually will happen much more rapidly heading into year end. From your vantage point, the longer that it takes, does that create a stickiness that people are underappreciating? Or do you think that this is just simply they need to get back down to their goal? They want to get there sooner than later just simply to remove that tax from lower income individuals in particular? Well, they think it's going to be a pretty drawn out process. Uh, we really don't get back to 2% inflation for couple of years uh, on the Fed's own forecast. I think they're not concerned about how long it takes as long as inflation expectations stay well right. anchored. The risk, of course, if inflation stays higher for longer, inflation expectations could become unanchored and that would make the Fed's job more difficult. So they want to keep a close eye on inflation expectations. Bill, we're not thinking too hard today. I don't need it to two or three decimal points, but I'm fascinated what your math is on a slower China and their machinations exporting disinflation or outright deflation. You and I have seen this over 30, 40 years as a theme. Are they going to adjust our lives because they're exporting price decline? I think what's going to happen in China is we're going to see more stimulus. Uh, end of the day, that they, they're going to want to have growth because growth generates jobs and jobs uh, generate political stability in China. So I think what we'll see is more stimulus out of China. I, don't, I do not expect the Chinese impulse back to the U.S. to be significant. We already are having goods disinflation. The problem in the U.S. is really in the services sector. You know, China might add a little bit to that goods disinflation, but I don't think it's meaningful uh, in terms of changing the inflation outlook. Do you have any kind of vector of disinflation with services at this time, or do you just simply need more data points? Well, the one thing that we know is coming is we're going to start to see declines in uh, shelter prices as measured by in the uh, personal consumption expansion deflator. We we know that that was going to happen with a lag, and that lag is about to arrive. Uh, the, the problem, as Chair Paul has indicated, is services inflation, excluding shelter, that's still very, very high. And as we've seen in the core PCE deflators that we've gotten over the last six months, we're stuck in this channel between 4.6% and 4.8% right. on a year over it's, it's not falling. It's, it's basically been flat. I think that's called sticky, John. Is that I think, right? I think uh, Dr. Dudley there identified the range-bound necessariness of the word sticky. I've got some good news for some people. I'm not sure what your positioning is like at home, but for those of you long European vacations, the euro, another break of 107, 106. <clears throat> you're, really, you're looking at that to five digits, aren't you? Yeah, for many reasons. <laughs> the dollar stronger, the euro weaker, off the back of this pretty robust data. In America, yields higher by, let's call it three basis points at the front end, 444. Equities, Lisa, just rolling over, just briefly, now unchanged on the session. Which might come partly on the ADP report that nobody trades until they do. And this idea that if you have a stronger than expected employment uh, reaction, that that will actually create more pressure for the Fed 
Bill, I want to just finish up with you on that point. Do you think that it is a foregone conclusion that regardless of what the data is, regardless of the jobs report we get tomorrow, they are not going to hike rates this month. They're going to try to signal it doesn't mean that they're done, but basically they are not data dependent for this particular meeting. I think the data would have to be very, very strong to convince them to move at the at the June meeting. Uh, it, they basically are concerned about the long legs of monetary policy, and that should that belief should not be influenced by the strength of the data. So I'd be very surprised at this point, especially given uh, Philip Jefferson's remarks uh, yesterday, uh, that, that that they would actually go ahead and tighten at the June meeting. But July seems uh, you know almost likely at this point. That felt like a rallying cry yesterday, didn't it, from the presumed Fed vice yeah. chair? It really did. Bill, thank you. Bill Dudley there, former New York Fed president, Bloomberg opinion columnist. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Heidi Crabo Redeker is with a senior fellow, Council on Foreign Relations, really writing as much as she can on what we were talking about yesterday and continue today with Rika Renminbi, and that is China. Heidi, thank you so much uh, for joining. Is the China slowdown for real? So I think, uh, you know, you have a lag in data and and some revisions, and I don't know if we really understand uh, if the data coming out of China is, is accurate, in part because they're coming out of, of a very, you know, significant COVID lockdown. So just think back to when we were mm -hmm. publishing our data and revising it after um, after COVID. Uh, it's just, I think it's, it's, it's too hard to focus right. on just one number. I actually focus more on the youth unemployment number as being a, a serious concern for me. Yeah, we'll, we'll go to that. You, you have a great uh, transatlantic and frankly trans world, I'd almost call it linkage between Europe and China. And you say EVs to the rescue for China and that a lot of the doubt about China will be solved by electric vehicles and their growth. Discuss that export might we're not factoring in. So I just got back from uh, from Europe and, you know, China was a, a key part of all the conversations um, because of the, the, the U.S. Uh, EU Trade and Technology Council. And we had, you know, uh, 
we had uh, Secretaries Blinken and uh, and Raimundo there, um, USTR. Thai, we um, we saw uh, kind of a um, a focus just on the the main bone of contention, which is that the subsidies for EVs in the U.S. are um, are are you know not uh, not offered to EU automakers because of the China um, the the China components to the vehicles. But I think that that you have this muscle memory of trade negotiators of going after, you know, what's what's happening between the US and the and the EU. And at the same time, you have China exporting more electric vehicles, more autos that are Chinese autos. Um, Just a striking, striking uptick in um, in in and uh, and particularly EVs. Lisa, there's the analysis and the further analysis is whoever's out on Twitter trying to figure out when Mr. Mr. Musk's airplane leave Shanghai. Well, yeah. That's happened the last 24 uh, hours. Exactly. I do want to, I know that we want to move on from the debt ceiling, but I kind of can't yet. And I have to sort of parry into the conversation that I'm sure, Heidi, you are having over in Europe, which is what are these subsidies going to look like, particularly when it comes uh, to the recent tech-driven investments that the U.S. were promising to make. Did anything really change? Was any of the heft of some of those programs removed from this agreement that we got from the debt ceiling, or was it basically the adjustments that kind of came in after the fact? and made sure it was all okay. So, you know, one of the great things about being overseas is that you really didn't have a lot of focus on the debt ceiling um, as opposed to like living at 24-7 here. Um, the, the, the focus on, on U.S. politics was much more driven by, by Trump and looking at the, the numbers and the, at the upcoming election and whatever deals are being struck right now between the U.S. and the EU, are they up for grabs um, if Trump were to win the presidency in the next go around. So I think, you know, that's Trump. Trump played a prominent role and concerns in whether or not there was a need for Europe to hedge in its negotiations, not for all countries, but for some countries. And I think that's why we didn't see consensus um, the same kind of consensus uh, that we saw at the G7 and the Quad meetings in the past two weeks um, when we uh, with our, you know, with our, our negotiators in Europe this week. What does that mean with respect to U.S.-European alliance, with respect to China, with respect to some of these bigger issues, if there is sort of a a pretty tepid receival of the United States with sort of ambiguous leadership? So I think that the U.S. seems to be very much in line um, and the Biden administration's in line with with the EU commission. Um, it's just that there are 27 different member countries and all of them are sort of playing out how they want to, um, how they perceive uh, weakness versus strength and need to hedge. Um, and because you have you have to have unanimity, um, it was in full display and particularly around China this week that you just don't have it in, in, um, in the EU where you do, I think, really in Asia to a, to a larger extent um, vis-a-vis China. I'll be less diplomatic. You have the commission and then you have Macron. And that's why things are confusing in Europe right now. And Lisa, that's been the story, hasn't it, for the last couple of months? Well, yes. And Emmanuel Macron is like, hey, we're going to strike a deal with you. Go China. Yeah, Yay, right. let's go to Beijing and the rest of Europe. It's like, what are you doing? At the same time, I wonder how much reticence there is to really partner with the U.S. in light of some of the recent subsidies, in light of some of the potential volatility. You think this is just a Macron issue? Oh, the reports I hear about how well-liked Macron is at the G7, it's just kind of, you know. Well-liked. Or how. Yeah, I was about to say. Less like liked he's liked i imagine that that's the case that's me trying to be diplomatic heidi thank you wonderful as always to hear from you heidi kriba redica there of the council on foreign relations 
It is our immense pleasure to speak with Alan Ruskin, Chief International Strategist at Deutsche Bank. His notes are absolutely fabulous. You can get them, of course, through Deutsche Bank. Alan Ruskin, you have an absolutely brilliant paragraph on M2 dynamics and nominal GDP. Is the surprise of the next 12 months forward that we have sustained nominal GDP because of sticky inflation? It's a little bit like that, uh, Tom. I think we're you know, going to see, for example, uh, data today, which shows that uh, productivity uh, was extremely weak in Q1, but not just Q1, on a trend basis, it seems. And uh, that weakness in uh, productivity translates to high unit labor costs, which is sort of stagflationary. Uh, and uh, output, we know, is relatively weak relative to employment. Uh, that's part of the uh, uh, weak uh, productivity story. So it all adds up to uh, nominal GDP doing an awful lot better than uh, real GDP uh, at, at this point. Uh, some of this, I think, is just this natural overhang from uh, the M2 right. growth. We had you know, something like uh, 30% uh, M2 growth above trend uh, a year ago. That's down to about 20% uh, overhang uh, thanks to weaker M2 growth that we've seen more recently. But still, I think that's really pro propping up the nominal uh, numbers, but uh, it, you know, money, money, monetary policy and money supply is a veil. It doesn't ultimately pay you to print money. Uh, it doesn't generate uh, real GDP growth. The real GDP growth is the recession game. Your colleagues have been brilliant on this. Matt Luzzetti has arguably the single best recession delay call of the last 18 months. Reframe that now. I'm not saying agree with young uh, Luzzetti, but at least frame out the Ruskin recession to come. Yeah, you know, uh, I've always been of opinion that given the overshoot on inflation, even if we have a mild recession, I would still cast that as potentially a soft landing sort of scenario. I know that's uh, uh, semantics in a sense, but I think we're still pretty much on track. Uh, but we do need to see some weakening in the labor market. And of course, everything we saw from the openings data yesterday uh, suggests that uh, employment will remain relatively resilient. So you've got this weird dynamic again, whereby employment is relatively strong compared to output. And particularly, I think we're seeing weakness in the manufacturing sector worldwide. So uh, there's, a, you know, there's another story there as well. But uh, um, I would say that uh, we're still on track for something which skirts recession slash shallow recession, um, but it's not looking like a deep recession unless we get some sort of nonlinear event like the banking sector crisis sort of really taking hold and a proper credit crunch, which we have not actually seen as yet. You mentioned manufacturing, Alan. That distinction, I think, is so important. Manufacturing PMIs worldwide, Europe, China, south of 50, contractionary, throwing the United States, pretty ugly there. It screams rate cuts in some places. Then you look at services, Alan, which make up the bulk of some of these economies, still pretty robust. Alan, the surprise of the last month or so has just been the breakdown in another consensus trade. Dollar weakness to dollar strength. Alan, as you look at things right now, have we broken that trend is this something new? And if it isn't, where does that new engine of dollar weakness come from? 
Well, I think it's deferred uh, dollar weakness. Uh, you know, the whole idea of a divergence trade that worked against the dollar, whereby, uh, you know, Europe, if not outperforming, at least the ECB was hiking whilst the Fed was on hold. And uh, China was obviously, you know, sort of reopening and strength uh, that we would expect there or we did expect there. You know, a lot of that just hasn't materialized. In fact, if anything, uh, the U.S. has been more resilient than anticipated. And, uh, uh, you know, consequently, I think what you're seeing uh, on the exchange rate is very much reflective of what you've seen on interest rate spreads. So uh, the interest rate spread story is just uh, taking its cue from this relative growth story. Um, I think right now, it depends on where the Fed goes. For example, uh, you know, if they hike uh, in June, it seems less likely after yesterday's Fed comments. But if they hiked in June, uh, I think we'd be down at uh, 105 on euro dollar. If they don't hike in June, we can trade here in the sort of 107 sort of area for the time being as far as euro dollar is concerned. Alan, you had this really interesting point in your latest note where you basically were saying there's a little risk of over tightening. That does not seem to be the theme that we're hearing in the Fed speak that's been coming out every day, day after day. Can you explain that, what that means as to where policy should be, where it will likely be, and what that means for longer-term inflation. Yeah, I mean, I think just look at your financial you know, conditions indicators. We all have uh, our own numbers, but if you look at the Bloomberg numbers, for example, you look at, uh, say, six-month financial conditions, 12-month financial conditions. Uh, if anything, they've eased rather than tightened, which is truly extraordinary. So the tightening needs to come from something like uh, the credit side. Uh, you're not seeing it in terms of credit prices particularly. Maybe, you know, issuance markets are, are tight and, and closing up. But uh, in general, you're not seeing a this kind of non-linear event that I think would have tightened financial conditions sufficiently to really risk over tightening. Now, maybe the Federal Reserve, uh, which has you know uh, uh, some distinct advantages in this sphere and knows a little bit more on the banking sector side. It's clear that you do need additional consolidation over the longer term. But I think that holds the key as to whether financial conditions tighten materially. It looked like they were tightening sharply, uh, you know, uh, um, a couple of months ago and yeah. uh, now much less so. Alan, wonderful to get your view. As always, Alan Ruskin there of Deutsche Bank. Thank you, sir. Seeking timely market and economic updates to help guide client conversations? Look to Nationwide. Nationwide makes simplicity a priority for financial professionals by offering easy access to timely perspectives on changing market conditions, so more time can be focused on helping clients keep their financial plans on track. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, FINRA member, Columbus, Ohio. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success.
Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. Chuck Grom, Senior Retail Analyst at Gordon Haskett. Love having him on. And it is about the parsing here of a hold to a buy. Chuck, real simple, with this disastrous set of headlines from Macy's, you nailed it with a tepid hold. Does Macy's become a sell? Um, I think Macy's is still doing a really good job on a lot of fronts. And I think that's exemplified on the balance sheet where inventory levels are still really lean. Um, you know, Macy's is, is a victim of the circumstance right now. And, and you alluded to it, people are preferring travel. Um, and with inflationary pressures out there, budgets are constrained. Um, so I, I don't personally think Macy's is a sell. We downgraded the stock back in late March at $18 to a hold. We, we sensed that the guide for the year that they outlined was too optimistic. Right. And today um, we're seeing that to a degree. But, but Macy's is still doing a lot of good things. Okay, they're doing a lot of good things. But the fact is it's been a train wreck for 10 years. And then in the pandemic, it sort of came around. And I get that's come off the bottom a little bit. Do you have enough faith in management and their strategy to say, I got a three or five year vector higher in Macy's, even if it's not back to 60 or 70? I think that's all going to depend on the consumer and what happens over the next couple of years. In the near term, we definitely think the stock is going to stay under pressure. They they did lower guidance by 25% this morning, which is a really big big cut. Clearly, the stock had been under some pressure and, and this was discounted to a degree. However, when you really unpack the guide, the fourth quarter, which is the holiday quarter for them, still does look aggressive. So another said, said differently, this this might not be the, the, the last cut uh, on guidance right now. We're just going to have to continue to, to, to monitor the data points across retail. Chuck, you were brilliant last time we spoke. You said this was the <clears throat> discretionary recession. And Chuck, I yeah. think what we're all trying to work out around the table is what is this about Macy's and what is it about the economy? Which one yeah. is which? Is this a Macy's story or a story about the economy? Yeah, well, what's interesting is this morning you have, you have two companies guiding down, both both Macy's and Dollar General. And if you think about the Dollar General customer, it's at the low end. Macy's is clearly at the high end. So you're seeing weakness across the board, whether it be low end, high end, discretionary. Um, and we talked about that a couple of weeks ago when I was on Post Home Depot. Um, it, it's really just people preferring um, you know, needs versus wants at this point in time. Chuck, you said that Macy's caters to high end, and yet the luxury players are all seeing gains. Is that really the case, or is it really a question of identity? Whether they actually are high end, whether they're low end, whether basically they're the middle income kinds of shoppers that are probably going to be the most squeezed right now? Well, I look at Macy's more high end, but clearly if you were to look at Nordstrom or even the Bloomingdale's banner within Macy's, that that would be high tiered. But you, you, you look at a company like Restoration Hardware, which is really the most most premier upper end com company we cover, and, and you're seeing weakness there. So consumers just getting strapped right now. Do you think that this is a temporary phenomenon as people sort of get the YOLO experience out of their belts and basically just keep flying around until they run out of money, and then they'll go back to buying stuff again? I, I do, actually. I do think that there'll, there'll be a time, and I'm, I'm not an expert in travel and, and leisure spend, but clearly people are over-splurging right now, given that you weren't able to do that for, for a couple-year period. So I do think at some point you'll, you'll see some balancing here across the board. 
Could you talk about the difficulty of ordering the correct mix of clothing at a time that still is the pandemic economy, as we've been talking about pretty much over the past couple of months, how difficult it is to know whether people are going to want stuff to go back to the office, stuff to go work out in, stuff to go out on the town or the casual back? I mean, how do you sort of parse out this quickly moving trend cycle? It's not easy, and I'm glad that's not my job. Um, <laughs> but, 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 I, but I do think that that Macy's has done a pretty good job over the past couple of years, knowing where the trend's going to be. But but that's one of the reasons why people like off price because the the lead times on off price are just so much shorter in duration. You know, you're talking about buying stuff today for for the next couple of months as opposed to buying stuff today for next spring. You know, knowing what's going to be hot and what's not you know, eight to nine months out is really, really difficult. And that's part of the reason why, you know, these department stores have just struggled over the past decade and have really get up, you know, given up well, a lot of share to off price. Are department stores dead? Um, I don't think they're dead. I think certain models are better than others. And I think, you know, again, I'm not here to be super negative on Macy's this morning because I do think that the team, and particularly their CFO, Adrian, has done a really good job managing inventory levels. Um, others, I think, you know, companies like Kohl's have, have struggles um, and and getting getting foot traffic into that into those stores has, has been elusive for for a really long time. And, and frankly, I don't know. I don't know how they fix it. I, I just find this absolutely important. And on a, on a revenue and unit basis, this is just a lack of traffic into the stores. So what is the what's your single best buy within retailing now? Is it a combined department store feel or is it a specialty stock? I I think the best two names to own right now in retail are Walmart and Costco. And you'll tell me that's super defensive and, and potentially super boring, but sometimes boring can be good. Interesting. Costco, Costco is the best retailer I've ever covered. Uh, it checks all the boxes. Um, and and to me, Walmart, there's no better time to own Walmart than right now, both from a from a sector perspective and, and given how difficult everything is out there and also from a company specific perspective. They're doing a really a lot of really good things. They and and I think the key theme for both both companies is they lead with price. They're the lowest price guys out there. And what consumer out there doesn't want lower prices right now? If you believe we're in a discretionary recession, quite clearly, that's the place yeah. to be. Chuck, thank you, sir. Chuck Grom there of Gordon Haskett on the latest with some of the retailers. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.